Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today's interview is with Zach Johnson of Sattler College. Zach was a few years into his military career when he became a convinced conscientious objector. I like this interview with Zach because I think a lot of our discussions this season have been philosophical and theological, which is great, but Zach is going to help us see the practical aspect of what it means to be in government and particularly in the military. We get to discuss topics like the military, of course, as well as the early church and poverty and violence. Zach also references quite a few resources, which I'm going to make sure to put in the show notes, along with some timestamps so you can easily jump around or come back to issues that pique your interest. So without further ado, here is the interview with Zach Johnson. Um, but yeah, so I, I, was, uh, I was really excited to be able to, to get the opportunity to talk with you. I'm, there's not really that much to know about me. I, I'm... I'm very different than than probably uh, you know most of the other people in the group because you know I'm I'm reformed. I go to a reformed church um, who aren't very nonviolent. Uh, my group, and um, but I'm from Pennsylvania. My last name is Kreider, and I have a beard, so I kind of it seems like I should be <laughs> Anabaptist. Right? Yeah, I uh, I can I can sympathize with you. I. I don't call myself an Anabaptist. I came out of that. I came out of a very evangelical world, but I married. I married a. Uh, my wife came out of that world, and so we we attend the church called Fallers of the Way out here in Boston. I don't know if you've heard of heard of that church at all or not, but that's yeah, quick quick and dirty to my yeah my no, background it, there. It was actually um, the Followers of the Way. Uh, I think it, I think the debate was called "It's Just War," right? Um, yep. at Harvard. That was the that was the video that um, that kind of started me on this because um, so it, it, I I saw your um, your video on I think Anabaptist perspectives you did an interview oh, yeah. with them yep so I, I watched that to cheat a little bit um, get some background knowledge on you and um, it, it sounds like your story is very similar for as for as horrible as the 2016 election was in terms of what it showed me about my group it also i wouldn't be where i am today if that didn't kind of open my eyes to reality and and i've met a lot of other people and it seems like you're one of those people who um who also was influenced by by what you saw at that time so that that set the stage that primed me and so when it, when a friend sent me that uh that debate video I was like, I so stupid, nonviolence. Like it's just, it's just impractical. I'll go watch this one video because my friend sent it, and then I can just rebut everything and um, and then just be on my way and and have dealt with that issue. And the video just blew me away. Um, and and particularly when he brought up, you know, the Nicene Creed, or um, and I was like, wait, this stuff is in church history, um, yeah. and. and and I went reformed in part because my group was not steeped in church history. Like we were very, very modern. Um, we didn't have any roots in church history. And I thought as a reformed guy, I did. But I, I realized that basically our church history was Augustine, then Calvin, Luther, and and so on. So that, yeah. Sorry, this <laughs> this is an interview no, about you, not me. No, no, no. I, I'm, it's good. To, it's good to know who who I'm talking to. So I'm I'm excited, and I'm I'm excited that that. 
debate made an influence. I know I wasn't actually around when that was made, so that was pre my before my day, but it, it also had a had a big influence on me. But I, I came to that later after, you know, I, I bumped into Finney here in here in Boston and then, you know, he's a very he, he sort of just led the discipleship with me a little bit there. So yeah, so because uh, because there's such a good interview with you um, on Anabaptist Perspectives, which I'll, I'll link, what I'd really like to do is, I mean, I want to let you kind of give a, a brief um, introduction to your story, but then I have, I have a bunch of questions as to uh, that might dig into a little bit more of the, the practical nature of, of what this looks like in the real world. So I'd, I'd like to, um, if you would just kind of do a brief in- introduction to your story and then we'll, we'll dig in. Yeah, great. I'll I'll try to make it as it's hard to it's hard to condense a story in a quick amount of time, but I'll try. Well, yeah, it doesn't. My, have to, I mean, like the, the Anabaptist perspective is like forty minutes, so if you can do twenty, twenty is good. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll do that there. Then my name is Zach Johnson. I uh, I'm currently the dean of students at Sattler College. It's it's a college it's a college startup in in Boston, but the the road to get here has been really interesting. So I was born and raised is a missionary kid in Quito, Ecuador. My parents were originally from Minnesota and went down with an organization called HEJB, that's Heralding Christ Jesus Blessings, to sort of pioneer Christian radio in Latin America. So that was the environment I grew up in. Um, a lot of missionaries were following in the wake of guys like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. I'm sure many of you, the listeners might be familiar with, with their story. So my family gave many tours of the of the house they grew up in, and it was sort of a, a real story to me that they're they're sort of the heroes of of the community, the missionary community down there. And I won't I won't get into like my my entire eighteen years down there, but I was there zero to eighteen, and I think my in in my when I share my faith of, of Christ, I start taking my faith seriously. Probably when I was a junior in high school, was, I had sort of had a, a wake up moment there. But it, it's really interesting to graduate from high school in Ecuador. What they have everybody do is they, they have an oath to the flag. So to, to graduate, all the students get paraded in. And I was an Ecuadorian citizen and they choose they choose one of the, the citizens and they, they hold the Ecuadorian flag. And I was I, I, so I was sitting there while my classmates one by one came and said, I swear to protect, and in, in, in Ecuador it's called patriotism or la patria, that, you know, I'll spend my life to protect this, defend it, X, Y, Z. So all my classmates did that, and I did it, paraded around, bent a knee, picked up the flag, kissed it. Well, fast forward six months, and I was joining the U.S. Air Force, renouncing my Ecuadorian citizenship. Really interesting there where, you know, I graduated, took an oath to this flag, and then in order to join the Air Force, I had to renounce my Ecuadorian citizenship, and I took an oath. Basically, I went to a uh, somewhere called the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. It's a, one of the military academies in the U.S. There are four different ones. There's sort of like a college program combined with commissioning into the military. Took another oath six months after that oath to the flag, and I, I like to sort of point out why people sort of don't pay attention to, I, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't even think about what I was doing realistically there. So I joined the military uh, in, in a different structure, spent two years there. In, it's a place in Colorado Springs. 
And then when I was there, my parents were still in the mission field. So I ended up visiting them one Thanksgiving and they were down in Haiti. They had been moved to Haiti after Ecuador with a, an organization called Samaritan's Purse. And when I went and visited them there, that's when I was really aware of sort of this, my lack of church community and my lack of, um, I'll, just, I'll just call it living a Bible-based life. So I was reading the Bible. I decided to get baptized in Haiti with my parents that year. And then when I came back, I was really disillusioned with the academy and sort of going to college, spending tons of time doing things I didn't really think was helping people. So then I left the Air Force Academy to go to Mozambique with, with Samaritan's Purse. So Mozambique is Southeast Africa. And so I, I, my passions are really development and the international world. But in, in Mozambique, it was really interesting because, you know, I was, I was there with, with a Christian organization. Church, but I was churchless, <laughs> so they sent me to the north north part of the country. And I guess you could describe it. I was trying to do good, but I had no. I really didn't know what I believed about about God or necessarily the Bible. And it was there that I met, actually, seriously encountered somebody who challenged me as a follower of Jesus, being in the military, because my plan was to go back to the academy initially that was my plan and he was actually a quaker and so the, that was actually one of the first times that somebody was like hey i don't think people who believe in the bible should should be using violence i was kind of like that's a weird that's a weird thing to say you know almost never heard of it before and spent my year there and then at the end of that year i tell a story where i was working at this hospital and we were trying to reopen it after a flood and there's a, a story of corruption where the, the food that was supposed to be going to the patients couldn't go there because the mayor of the town had sort of taken that and built a personal palace. And I was really angry, just like very angry and be like, that guy needs, literally that guy needs to die. It was sort of my mentality, like justice needs to be served. And so that sort of just fueled me to go back to the, gave me a lot of fuel to go back into the military. And, and I had this, Thing in mind, like part of doing good as a Christian is going to be to, you know, systematically not eliminate evil by, you know, by violence. That was sort of the, the picture I had in my in my mind. So I spent two years there, finished the academy out, and they they sent me. I, I did I did really well at the academy. Fortunately, I I was I was very focused student. I got a scholarship from Harvard to come and train. At a school called the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and I, so I moved right from Colorado to Boston here, and I was, I had it in my mind that I was going to go be a guy that pointed lasers on uh, on targets running around on the ground where the Air Force sort of drops bombs there. So that was what I was training for. But I, my passion started swift switching to being a like a, a military diplomat because I started meeting a lot of international leaders where I was interacting here. And the Kennedy School produces a lot of international presidents and stuff like that. But it was that, it was, that was in 2015 when I went there. And we, we were talking about this before. Being a Christian in the military and in the 2015-2016 era, especially when you're – I was taking classes from people who were really involved in politics. like. 
their entire life was based on political, the political outcomes of the U.S. election. It was a really confusing time for me. I was, I took a class with a woman named Megan O'Sullivan, who was on George uh, Bush 43's um, cabinet, who led some of the efforts in Iraq. And I remember as a military member having this, this concept that in the U.S. that a Republican president had a team of prayer warriors who were, you know, praying over the military outcomes, you know, really connected to, to God and the Bible. And what was shocking to me was how secular the, I found out that the, the country, I think, is run. And I think I would confirm that, too, that God is a little bit absent from the calcula- calculations of protecting U.S. interests. And I was, I was just wrestling that, at that election. I know you're familiar with this. It was it was Trump versus Hillary. And I was, I was like, this is riddled with compromise. I don't agree with one person. I don't agree with the other person. And, and in two years, or at that point, in six months, I'll be going and I'll be killing in the name of whatever leader gets elected. And that I, I felt very, very, very hypocritical and lost. And But a lot of people sort of gave me you know, assurances. They pointed me to scriptures and Romans. Romans 13 is one of the big uh, sort of guardians of being a Christian in the military um, in, in terms of where, where I come from. But th- that's when I met uh, a man named Finney Caravilla out here. I was actually just kind of crying my plights out to a chaplain uh, through InterVarsity. That's a, a college ministry that kind of looks after Christians going to different academic institutions. He's like, you got to go meet this guy named Finney. He teaches a Greek class on Saturdays and then also leads an apologetics group. So that's when I met a guy named Matt Finney. And I I met him, was thoroughly impressed with his level of biblical knowledge, probably superseded any like non pastoral minister in biblical knowledge I'd ever met. He was a, and so I was like, I gotta go figure out what this guy is about. So I ended up visiting their church. Um, and the first time I visited their church, somebody handed me a book named King Jesus Claims His Church. I highly recommend it if, just as a sort of a snapshot into the church I attend out here and how, how it was founded. There's a, a chapter in there called Peacemaking and Non-Resistance. And it was the first time there's this in, really interesting question that it, I didn't even think about before, but I should have. Can a Christian kill another Christian? is one of the, the questions I started to think about. Like, all right, in the system I'm a part of, I can't even control if I'm going to go kill another Christian, let alone, you know, at that point, there's a war on terror and ISIS. So a lot of people don't really think about that question, like Christians killing Christians. When when has that ever happened before? World War, World War II is a great answer to that, but um, I'll, I'll stay out of all the what I've discovered since then. And then that's when I really wrestled with Hey, the New Testament, and what does it say? And is my life in agreement with it? And very quickly, after reading through a little bit of church history, I found my life was at odds with especially what I thought Christ taught and how the early Christians lived it out. So I was convicted. And I, at that point, I said, I will give everything to follow Christ to. To know, uh, be in a, a part of a system that will align with him. So I ended up going through a process called the conscientious objection process. And I won't tell all about that. There's, there's stories after stories. And 
about that, but I was ended up being released from the Air Force about six months later at no at no small cost. It was a lot lengthy process and it was it was painful. All my relationships were ruptured, my entire worldview was switched, my future, a lot of debt sort of got put, pinned on. So I don't want to like sweep over it as if it was nothing, because it really was a really interesting year of my life. And then so the Air Force sent me to LA where I worked as Lo and behold, a congressional analyst for Air Force's space program, where I handled all of a bunch of congressional inquiries into how the the United States governs its space program. At that point, it was really interesting. The the generals were talking about weaponizing weaponizing space. I think we'll see that a little bit in the future. But then they let me go. I came and was on the team to start a college called Sattler College, where I work now. That's really passionate about you know, training people up in the, the his, we call it the historic Christian faith being, you know, the faith that was once delivered so that we can sort of sweep into various areas. And my passion here is peacemaking. That's sort of what I've been reading about a lot is how can we take peacemaking to the next level that is on a Christ-centered model? Don't have all the answers, but I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> Does I think I did okay. That was like 10 minutes. Yeah, no, that, that's perfect. And like, like I said, I'll link um, to that other interview where you can get more information, which I would recommend because, yeah, you don't want to gloss over that part where, you know, you could potentially owe $500,000. I mean, that's, right. there's a, a huge cost to, uh, to doing what you did. And I think that that adds weight. Um, you know, it's not just, just something that you did lightly for sure. Um, yeah, so um, one of the first questions that comes to mind, because we talk a lot about Romans 13, and um, that, that's something that people bring up a ton. So why didn't the Bible's justification for government to use the sword, why, why is that so sufficient a reason for so many other people to be Christians? Because I think the last I saw was like the Pew Research, it was... 25 or 35 percent of the the u.s military are are evangelicals and i don't think that even includes roman catholics and and others why wasn't that convincing for you you know i was i was extremely convinced of it when i went in so i don't want to like i don't want to brush over that i didn't really believe in that and there's a there's actually a debate you mentioned that you you've watched a debate called it's just war can christians fight I actually organized a debate with followers of the way on the opposite side when I was still convinced I was in the right and it's called Can Christians Vote? And that's a debate, uh, that was a debate between a man named Matthew Milioni and I think, I can't remember the other man's full name. His first name was Josh. And and it was in that debate that I was I was listening to sort of the com- the competing allegiances between like a, a stark contrast between Christ and the government, Christ and the government of the world. And there's a notion that Romans 13 combines those, right? The What Romans 13 has said is that the, the leaders of the world are God's ministers and they use the sword to punish, to punish evil and we don't have to fear them if we do good. You know, the, the thing that really, I think, undid my understanding of Romans 13 was a simple, <laughs> the simple, contextual argument of Romans. So Paul wrote Romans, the book of Romans, and he was writing the book under, the, I'm sure you might know this, but it's, it's good to know, under the 
under the Roman Emperor Nero. All right, so Paul is writing this, Romans 13, about <laughs> Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, Nero ends up being the very man who cuts Paul's head off at the end of his life. And that, that argument was really interesting to me to think about God's ministers not be necessarily being good. And then you can actually do some interesting word studies on where that where that word is used, minister specifically. It also is used in Septuagint. Septuagint is just the Old Testament in Greek to describe people like Nebuchadnezzar. And so all of a sudden, throwing in the context to that, started to unravel the Romans 13 argument. And then Romans 12, right before them, the, the, the conclusions to the Romans 12 is, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink, And which is echoing <laughs> Jesus' call to enemy love. And so after taking Jesus seriously, I think, I think it's just the, the shift to view, to interpret Romans in light of what Jesus said, instead of interpreting what Jesus said in light of Romans. There, I, I hope that makes sense, but... The, yeah, it's it's sort of a hermeneutic, right? Yeah, and it, it kind of uh, it makes me think when you talk about kissing the Ecuadorian flag, like it makes me it makes it so clear to me why, like in the United States, evangelicals in particular are very military minded, and so we we conflate or, or we merge the American flag and the Christian flag, right? Um, because we know that we've we can only kiss one flag. Right, you can you can only be loyal to one, and so you have to blend the two in order to to make military and state work. Um, but that's, it seems like the Bible separates the two. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right, and I, I think that it, it, it's really interesting because the, the the whole oath. I was in the military perspective, but there's another fundamental teaching called the doctrine of two kingdoms, where I think there's a there's like this myth of the U.S. being a Christian nation. I, I call it a myth, but there's a strong belief. I, I say it's a myth now that the U.S. is a Christian nation, that we are fundamentally Christian, and just examining that a lot and really being honest about <laughs> that question, I think, helped me a lot to think about Romans Romans 13 there. All right, so let me uh, get kind of away from the theological question a little bit. Um, and, and talk a little bit more practically for, like, let's say, maybe people who are in the military or, or considering going in. Right. Um, so if, if you, you've read through the early church and, and you probably know that um, if, if there was a soldier, a lot of times you'll see that the recommendation is, hey, look, if you're a soldier, you've taken an oath, you've, you're, you're in, you remain in that position, provided that you don't bow to the gods and you don't, you don't have to do harm to anybody. Do you feel like if there's somebody listening to this who's in the military, could you give that advice? Would you say, hey, look, remain where you are and then leave? And and if you could give them that advice, why why didn't you do that? Yeah, it's a I, I this is my favorite thing to talk about. I I uh I've been working nonstop since I left trying to get other people to leave who call themselves Christians. So that will frame where I'm going to, where I'm going to take this discussion. I do know the early Christians pretty well on this. There's a great, great book called Caesar and the Lamb. I highly recommend working, working your way through it because it specifically goes about 
the first 300 years of the writing specifically about the question of soldiers and oath-taking. And I always point people to the story of a guy named Maximilian. He's the first documented conscientious objector. And he was 21 and he was getting recruited into the Roman, into the Roman legions. And he says, I can't serve. I'm a Christian. I can't serve. I'm a Christian. And there's a, an amazing story about him going and they're like, they're trying to convince him, right? Like, just serve, like, stop saying this. Stop saying this. You're a Christian. You don't have to lose your life. Because at that point, if you rejected, it's called the Roman sacramentum was the oath to the Roman government. If you rejected it, the consequences were having your head cut off. So it wasn't as <laughs> it wasn't as grave as it, as it is today. But there's a story of him. He rejects it. He was the first documented conscientious objector. Gets his head cut off in front, basically in front of his dad. And his dad, they didn't even they hadn't really thought about it either. And his dad goes and studies, you know, ends up studying the scriptures, and he says he counts it a joy that his son had his head cut off so that he could discover. The, the truths of Christianity. So that's the first. And when I tell talk to people in the military, I, I share my story that when I applied as a conscientious objector, I said, I can't use violence and I can't take oaths or my two because of, of Matthew chapter five if, if in the Sermon on the Mount. And I point people to Jesus's words there. And the military is so interesting to me because they said to me, we'll find somewhere for you to be in a nonviolent capacity where you're not using violence, that's fine. We, I, they were actually exploring roles for me. But the straw that broke the camel's back was that in the officer corps and um, in the enlisted corps as well, there's sort of these two different levels in the military. You have to take the oath every time on a consistent level, every time you promote. And so I, my, my promotion was actually coming up in the Air Force. And I, <laughs> I did something where I refused to promote because I was, I refused the oath. And so I was sort of frozen in, in a point of time because I wouldn't, I wouldn't take the oath. So I was actually stripped of the promotion and the pay. And I point, I point people to the oath of office as being the most significant thing. My, my most significant indication that you can't stay in the military under the oath you've taken when you pledge your allegiance to Christ. The oath goes something like this. I, I state your name, um, being appointed an XYZ in the military, um, will protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all foreign enemies, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And there's this clause that says, I take this reserve, this obligation freely without any uh, mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will. I don't have it word for word here that I will fulfill my duties to the best of my ability. And I look at people, I'm like, you can't say those words as a Christian. And if you do, your word means it doesn't mean anything to you. That's, that's where I try to, to try to get people to think, start thinking about if they're convinced about the nonviolence piece, you know, that's a, that's a whole nother piece in itself, but they, they kind of work together, right? That Jesus prohibits oath before, before he tells people about enemy love. And that's where I, my advice to guys in the military, I, there's a guy leaving the Air Force right now. He's about 95% of his way through. And it's once you are freed up to say, I won't bend my knee to any flag, but to any flag or system other than Christ, you, you end up feeling like so empowered as a Christian to know that you're, you're sort of associating with the martyrs of old that I would say that sort of reject 
this this notion that somebody can tell you what Christ meant or that Christ comes second depending on interest. So that's my my short answer is that before taking oaths, I would I would hide I would just study what was happening before and ask if it aligns with what Christ taught. Given you're a committed Christian, if you're not a committed Christian, it's a harder argument to make. I've actually walked someone through the process for non-religious reasons, more just like moral reasons against violence as well. So I can talk about that a little too, but yeah. Yeah. The, well, that that's really, in, I mean, I had like five other questions I was going to ask you, but you just kind of went down, went down through them. So I want to kind of elaborate where, where I was headed and just make sure that I, I understand you correctly. Um, because my impression of the military before was, Hey, look, the reason that I would have a problem going to the military is the violence. But then you you think about it, and it's like, well, most most people, I don't think, use violence or even um, are like directly involved, like loading the bombs on the planes. You know, most right. pe- most people don't have their hands in the violence. Um, but you know, for the the picture that you're painting, having to take an oath, like all every time you promote and and all of that stuff, it seems like, or. Um, like, would you have to salute the flag or, or stand at attention or, uh, were there certain requirements for the flag and, and that kind of stuff? Oh yeah. I mean, the, the, the U S flag in the military, it's like, in your you get trained to treat that as if it's like your, I, I don't know you, when it raises up, you stand at attention, salute it. When it comes down, you stand at attention, salute it. When it's walked into any ceremony, you stand at attention, salute it. So the, the flag is. <laughs> the, the flag is definitely it's built into military culture that that is your your banner and that you extra extreme amounts of respect to it and what it represents and there, I, I don't want to like completely and there are got there are a lot of things represented by that flag that i think are good um sacrifice is one of the huge ones that like how did how dare you disrespect something that so many people have died for is a big argument but yeah it's built into everywhere in the military and yeah, the answer to the question is yes. You're a ton of allegiance to the flag. Yeah. So, because in the early church, like doing violence was one of the big issues for why you avoid the military. And the other, the other main thread. I mean, you you could go to oath taking, but the other main thread is um, idolatry. Like idolatry is right. a is a big problem. So one of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, we, I focus so much on violence, but is idolatry a big issue? And it seems like. I, the way that I would assess it is yet like the way that you kind of elevate this symbol, this idea, this um, whatever that, that seems pretty idolatrous to me. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I, I, I agree with the call it. I'm, there's not a great definition of idolatry in my, that comes immediately to mind, but there's definitely an idolatry that you elevate the flag. I, to the level of God, <laughs> I, uh, do, I have, if I have time for a five minute, I have, I have a spiel about this. I talk about at the Air Force Academy, if you'd be willing to hear it. Yeah. So I've got, I've got a lot of time. I don't know how much time you have. Yeah, I, I've got some time. So at the Air Force Academy, I, I saw this come in really interesting where there's, there's something you should Google it sometime. The Air Force Academy Chapel, it's a really interesting looking building so that that this the chapel is the center point of the, the academy 
it's like it looks down upon everything. So you look up at it and that's where the place of worship is right to God. And there was a there was a debate once that they were going to start something called the it, it was called the like the, the Center for Character and Leadership. And they were going to build an equally impressive structure next to the chapel. And it came in that some of the, the old guard said the chapel has to be the tallest point at the on the academy always really getting into this this notion that um that god is governing the operations here right that they 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 really that's really important for people to to believe especially you mentioned it before because of the number of christians who are involved in the military so if that is ever challenged that god isn't involved at the top you know you can imagine a ton of problems I like to talk to people about the word, the word chapel and chaplain. So there's another really fun story that I like to talk about by another, another conscientious objector in the early Christians called St. Martin of Tours. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever heard of him, but he's actually the Catholic saint of, for the homeless, really the soldier and the homeless. So there's a story about him that goes, he was in the Roman legions and he was, have you heard the story before? Just yeah, I have, but ref- refresh my memory. And, yeah. and was was Martin? I think one of these guys. Like, isn't he? Um, uh, isn't his day like November eleventh, the day that we have uh, Memorial uh, Veterans Day? I, I I don't know the answer okay. to that. Maybe, maybe not. But the, the story goes: he's in the Roman legions as a soldier. I'm not sure exactly what he he rides his horse by a homeless person, and he. He looks down and he has compassion on him. He's like, this homeless person was not clothed. And so the story goes that he cut, <laughs> took his sword out and he cut his, what they used to wear these capes called capellis. That, that word is important. I'll tell you why. So he cut, cut, cut half of his cape off and wrapped it around this homeless man. Later that, that night, supposedly he had a dream where he saw a Christ. He, he knew about Jesus Christ clothed in his cape. So he he goes on to, sh- to see that, man, what I did there was actually a good moment. He ends up leaving, le- refusing to, to continue in the military after he has that dream because he acknowledges that the military is incompatible with Christ. And, and so they actually threaten him, threaten to put him on the front line of a battle with no weapon in, in consequence to his decision to leave. He ends up not having to do that. But that's actually where the word chapel and chaplain comes from, was Martin of Tours and his capelli, where he cut off, he actually cut off his robe and refused military service. That's the origins of the word. And I always talk about like, how interesting is it that the origins of the word chapel are non are nonviolent <laughs> and somehow they've made it their way to a place of I would just say idolatry is a good a, a good way to point it and and trying to maintain the notion that God is in control when really I would I would strongly challenge the notion that God is is in control of the military system anyway yeah no yeah and I I would add that so I just double checked and um yeah St Martin's funeral day is November 11th that's when it's celebrated so so you know yeah. to add to the irony uh, November 11th was supposed to be armistice day you know to the celebration of peace Martin of Tours is celebrated as a saint on November 11th, and we've turned it into Veterans Day, a celebration right. of the people who who are willing to fight and kill. Right. When he was the one that 
rejected it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a, uh, we co-opt things all the time. Yeah. Stanley Hauerwas talks a lot about the way that we co-opt, um, different things and symbols and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that about chapel. So that's awesome. Yeah. Anyway. And I always talk about it cause as a, when you're in the military, there, there's a numbing of your morality that I'll just call it a numbing of your morality that you can, you sort of trust, you look up at that chapel and you're like, all right, you're like, this is right. Like God is here somehow, even though I don't know how, and I don't have to, I don't have to answer the hard questions because we're under God, right? That somebody else can deal with that. Maybe God himself. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, another practical question that I have, um, some of my best friends are in the military. Some of the people that I, I respect the most are are in the military. Um, but I, I've obviously come to see that Jesus' teachings on, on nonviolent are, it's not just true. It's not just like a secondary or tertiary doctrine. It's, it's a, a central doctrine. But a lot of my friends are military or pro-military. A lot of people in my church, pro-Second Amendment, self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I struggle because if, if people in my church were living in adultery, or in open lust, that would be something that that they would be confronted about. And if confronted and there was a refusal to repent, then there would be a disassociation um, or um, excommunication or, I mean, some, some severe steps would be taken. So I, I really, really struggle because I, coming out of violent culture and being very pro second amendment. Like I hope somebody breaks into my house because, you know, we'll we'll teach them. Um, like I, I understand the, the pragmatic aspect of it, the justice aspect of it. Um, but it's a big deal. So how, how do you work through, do you excommunicate all those people or do you, how do you, how do you work through disowning the 98%, I don't know the percentage, but like 98% of, of Christians who aren't nonviolent. Like, how do you, what do you do? Yeah, this is a, this is a huge question. And I probably am not going to give the answer that uh, maybe a straightforward answer. I'll 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 talk about my story a little bit and how, how I think about it. When I was trying to sift through this decision to leave the military. I was, I was part of a church called, part of a church is a strong word. I went there and was part of a small group. It's called Reunion. It's a reformed church in, in Boston. And then I would go to Followers of the Way in the afternoon. They have an even more of a late afternoon service. And I was wrestling with this question. Like, can I, the question, can I follow Jesus and be in the military? That was the question I was trying to, trying to answer, right? And I, I try to meet with uh, my pastor at the Reformed Church, just like going over everything. I'd be like, can, can, you know, I read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, was going over all the arguments in the early church. And he, he looked at me and he said, uh, I don't think this church is the place for you. Honestly, he's like, I, I think you're, you belong somewhere else. Like, you don't need to go here, which was hard to hear, right? Because I was looking for some some ammunition to try to maintain ma- maintain some sort of um, place in the the community that I had sort of been part of my whole life, 
Whereas followers of the way, I found out that they do, a, they do communion on, or we now do communion every week. And they told me, I, I, it came out that until I renounced my, my, until I renounced, yeah, my commitment to violence and my commitment to taking oaths in the military, that they wouldn't commune with me in the military, it wouldn't commune with me. And so that, you mentioned the word excommunication. Um, the origins of that word, if, when you look at them, are more about communion than they are about um, just being kind of a general member in the church. And that's where I think the my my shift as to what church is really started changing to that church you're gonna everybody has to answer this sometime in their life is church a hospital for sinners or is church a gathering of committed disciples and so when you when you answer that if you put violence and you mentioned adult violence and oath taking in the category of sins then you as a person can't can't be in communion with somebody who is. And that's that's a really interesting and novel idea in, in the church I grew up in. But that's that's sort of what I, I, I tell people is you have to form the people you commune with, with people who are committed to Christ as the early Christians did. And when they somebody in the military wanted to join them, they'd say, it, I actually, you asked this before, they would say, renounce your position on violence and oath-taking, and you're free to join us, and we'll support you in any way. And But I also wanted to say that I know that some of you mentioned some of your best friends are in the military. Mine are as well. My entire world is. And it's not that I cut my relationship off with them, but it's that I stopped interacting with them in the capacity that we were both followers of Christ communing together. Because I, I really do think this is where I, I look at churches and I'm like, if you don't teach Christ teachings, I, I don't know. I, I have a lot of problems, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. And why why has that not become something we hold people to? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. I, I, I think adultery is, is a one that people hold people to, but not all of them. So that my answer is, is really deciding that you're going to commune. Communion, you, you understand when I use the word commune, just bread in the cup and partaking in that moment some people call it the love feast and that group of people being people that are following christ the way that you understand that's a hard answer but it's closed some people call it closed communion some people call it close communion that you're you know everybody's life enough and that you you have communion they have some teeth to it that people who aren't following christ wouldn't it wouldn't make sense for them to be there yeah, no, I, I mean, hard answers uh, don't don't mean that they're not right answers. So, right. yeah, that that's very helpful because um, I'm very averse to the uh, to the way that my Christian community has worked. You know, if somebody comes out at, in in the past, my current community is not so much like this. But you know, if somebody comes out as homosexual, it's like disown them. So I, I don't like the idea of disowning. But this is this is different. It's like, well, no, we'll we'll be with you and we'll have relationship with you, but there's an inner circle. There's a, there's something that you can't get that close to because of where you're right. at. And and I just, I just want to encourage you as well. I mean, I, I tell everybody if followers of the way had said, we'll commune with you while you're in the military, I would not have left the military. I would have been like, 
oh, I can do, I can have both. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, if somebody wouldn't have called me out on my life not being <laughs> in line with Christ, I think I would have kept going. And what I think is dangerous is that when churches don't elevate this to the level they should, I think they validate a lot of things and sort of just they give people permission to exist in both worlds. And so I'm really glad that I bumped into that. I know not many people do, but that somehow there are some teeth like, hey, get your act together or don't call your like call yourself like a seeker, but not like a committed Christian until you've really committed to it. Anyway, no. I, I would just encourage that there's some power there as well. No, it's good. And it, it stands in such stark contrast. Um, the other, the other veterans day, I was at my parents' church and they go to a, uh, you know, a conservative um, church and they, um, you know, I think they have flags, but then on Veterans Day, they they honored everybody. All the veterans stood up. And just thinking about those two things are so opposed to each other, like refusing to serve those people who stood up communion versus honoring honoring those people. Um, right. It's just, yeah. And and I think I think the early this is why I think the early Christians, if there's like it's just reading them, their mentality is so different than the wet than what you and I are probably used to. And they're like, they're really adamant that they're for the government. They're not against, that they're not against the government. They always make these arguments or there's a little section in or, a, a man named Origen. He's writing to, like, the, the letter is called against Celsus, or I don't know how to say that. Maybe it's Celsus. It starts with a C-E. But he's saying, he's basically saying like, Christians will be your most loyal servants. We will pray for you. We will hope for peace for you. We will pray against violence for you. And it's not that we're we're against the government. It's that we're, we've just chosen Jesus as King, and we we can't like compromise on His teachings. And so I, there is a stark contrast there. And and I think some people when they hear like, "Oh, you're not for the military. You must be against the military," and that there's that's sort of a hard <laughs> a hard set of assumptions to work through, right? That you I want everybody to leave the military and follow Christ. I'll just say that right now. I want everybody in the military to leave it, but I will pray for you while you're in there and I'll I'll pray for you to come to Christ and I'll pray for you not to have to use violence and, and these things. Th- does that kind of make sense as well? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's one by Tertullian as well who says something to the extent of, Hey, look, we're not gonna go out and fight for you, Emperor, but we'll go out we'll pray for you while you go out and fight. And he's like, We're actually doing the more important job. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But we it's hard that's hard to believe. Um, I think the early Christians had a more they believe better than I do. I'm working on it in in the power of prayer versus the power of what I can do with my hands here on in my lifetime. For sure. So I, I've got one more set of questions if you if you still have time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I, I enjoy this. I could do this this forever. So you just let me know when you uh, when you need to go. Um, one of the things that that was interesting about your story was you talked about how you went at one point. I think you took a break from the Air Force Academy, and you went out and you were divvying aid through through the government. Um, so I just I just finished a season on government, and um. It, it's hard for me to conclude that that with me not doing violence, that that I can participate in the government either through voting or through direct participation. Um, but 
having worked in handing out aid as one aspect of, of your military role or government role, were there some good aspects as well as bad aspects that, that you were able to see about that? And do you think that like, if, if we would withdraw from the military, because I know a lot of Christians sometimes would say, well, if all the Christians left government or if all the Christians left the military, um, look at all the good we do in the world, we wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so yeah, would that, what, what good did you see? What bad did you see? And do you think it would harm the world if Christians withdrew from that? Yeah, the the world of uh, of development aid. I, I don't want to claim that I'm the expert, but I spent, you know, my my family they worked for Samaritan's Purse. I worked for Samaritan's Purse, and I studied it a lot. There's a great book called When Helping Hurts that that wrestles through some of this. Have you heard of that book at all? And it it, it, it talks a little bit about about the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of Christians and aid. And I'm not saying that it's all bad. Giving people food and aid is, is good. But I, I think we really have to be honest with ourselves and where we spend our lives, our life's goals. And this is where I like to talk about the term human security. So if you ask a, if you ask like a pure, I'll use the word realist, just like a, a secular person, what is human security? They'll, they'll talk about safety and things like that. If you ask, if you ask like a, someone called a liberal a realist, there, now there's someone, something called liberalism, not in terms of polit- politics, but in more terms of international relations. They'll kind of say like, oh, equality, equality is really human security where we're all equals. I think the Christian really has to take a that look at that question and take a really strong look at it. What is human security? Maybe I'll ask you, <laughs> you as a Christian, what is human security? Oh man. Um, and, and you, and you I, can, this, th- there can be a theological lens to this too. Yeah. So I guess the, uh, I'll use a story to, to kind of tell you what I ideally think it, it should be. Um, so we use catechism questions and we were teaching our, our kids catechism. Right. Um, and um, one day we were, we were at the beach and we were going to go out, but it started to, to storm. And so my daughter said, uh, we told our kids we weren't going to go because it was dangerous. And my daughter said, well, why not? God will protect us. And we're like, she's already wrestling with the problem of evil at four or natural evil. And right. so we were able to use the catechism and says, well, you know, does, does the catechism say that God will protect your life, your physical life? No. But what is it, what does it mean that God will protect you? Well, he'll, he'll preserve your soul. Um, and so I guess the way that I would see human security is knowing that I can step out in faith, uh, to do the right thing, no matter the consequences, knowing that, uh, God preserves me in, in right. some sense forever. Yeah, and, and I, I like your answer a lot. That that hu- human security for the, the the Christian, I would say, is more how, more about soul security than it is about our physical security, right? That at the end of the day, that the soul is what we is what we're fighting for here on Earth. And what what I what I think about aid and my experience with it is that if we manage to 
you know, feed, feed someone another day and even give them shelter. These are good things. I don't want to point fingers and say aid and development are bad, but if we fail to chase their soul, that's when I have big, <laughs> that's when I have sort of a big eye-opening moment where it's like, what's more important, their soul or their, their immediate physical needs? I don't want to ignore their immediate physical needs, but in terms of military aid and government aid, um, I was I worked on grant writing while I was part of Samaritan's Purse for USAID. USAID is the US, United States Agency for International Development. So if you ever get into the NGO world, you'll you'll come across <laughs> writing grants to get money to give to people. It's not it's not getting at true human security if it's purely a purely physical aid and I think that I think that the notion that just give being able to give people food and help them in this life, I'm even able to go to as strong as to say that that even if, if you believe in if we have a worthy opponent here on earth called it called Satan, that that's actually good for him, that he thrives when people think that only the only security that matters is the physical security. And so that I think that's the danger for it. And I don't I don't want I actually really I'm passionate about aid and development as well. If if your sole purpose is your human souls, if does does that make sense? There's a yeah. There's a there's a debate between, you know, being a purist and a holist and what we elevate more. And I would say over the course of time I elevate more models that can disciple people into following Christ as opposed to just uh doing good for them in terms of physical needs. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the James aspect where you, you do want to help them, but um, there's a holistic approach to that where if you're, if you're only helping one aspect of a person, if you're not being a dualist, then if you're being a monist, then that's a problem. Right. And I would even say, even in James and in Matthew, that there are, I don't, I don't know where I fall in this, that the arguments is that the brothers in need are already within your church. Like, like the people who, especially the sheep and the goats, people people say anyone who does the least of these, my brethren, that there might be an indication that Jesus is talking about the church. Like the church is definitely, if there are people needy among our own, <laughs> that intimate group among us, then there's a huge problem that we need to figure that out. And then that ripples out into into the world, like you indicated in James there. Yeah, and it... it- it seems like um, so when helping hurts is very big on you help people within your community because that's where you have relationships and that's where you're going to be able to work with body and soul um, right. and, and and recognize real needs. The way that my group, I saw my group using that book. So I I had a really bad taste in my mouth for when helping hurts, which which I in retrospect now that I've been able to even out. Um, I, I think it says good things, but I think it can be used terribly because w- the way that my group used it was, oh, well, those those poor people, you know, because we're, we're a pretty affluent church. The Reformed denominations tend to be more affluent as right. well. We're pretty affluent and we'd see poor people and we'd be kind of like, well, when Helping Hurt says we help people in our community, they're not in our community. So <laughs> I guess right. we can't help them as opposed to figuring out, well, how do I how do I become a part of their community? Like, do I go live in their community? Do I, you know? Right. And, and the, you know, the, the quippy one-liner from that book is that we, we've get, we've gotten really good at giving relief when 
when development is needed. So like we feel really and they, they their chapter on short term missions I think is 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 one of my favorite chapters where the the solution to long term problems can't be quick and easy quick and easy solutions about giving food you know giving a band aid here taking a mission trip a three week mission trip to X Y Z country and then coming back to the U S and never doing anything again that it's rooted you said being part of their community the change is rooted in permanence and that. If we're gonna go do aid, I hope I hope we don't do it in short term stints that we're really sold out for it and we're in it for the long haul. That's why I like I like that book. Yeah, that's why in incarnation for me has become a word that I, I reflect on a lot because um you know, to become part of somebody's community community you need to incarnate. And um right, that, like that's that. that's the hard work of of that long term term stuff. Um so I, I I also want to ask you, I, my experience, so prior to the 2016 election, I was working on our church's diaconate, read When Helping Hurts, and and started dealing with the Matthew 5 issues of, uh, you know, giving to the beggar, um, or the Sermon on the Mount, you know, giving to the beggar, and some of those hard things. And I realized, wow, we're, we're, not, we're not doing this in regard to poverty. Um, and and so that that primed me then for the 2016 election and, and all of that stuff. It was interesting because I, I was listening to a different podcast and somebody else who had gone to live in slums in, in um, Asia somewhere, he was saying that he wasn't a pacifist going in and most of the people that he knew weren't. But he's, he said, it's amazing how many people come out of working with the poor mm-hmm. as, as being nonviolent. And he said that a, a part of that that he thinks is because when you see, when you see poverty, you recognize like you did where you see, Oh, that, that guy is funneling aid or you see, Oh, these people are poor because my country was here earlier and we exploited these people or we might be exploiting them now in in sweatshops. Like the poor are oppressed by violence and by violence of our own country and, and violence of the rich did did your work with with the poor or with aid did that have any influence on other than obviously talking to the Quaker nonviolent guy but did did your your work with aid and poverty have any impact on your move to nonviolence the 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 answer to this is no and I'll tell you I'll tell you why because a lot of my friends believe this too. It's interesting that they wear two different hats. They wear one hat in the military and they take that off and then they go. And then when they go do their other ministerial work or whatever you want to call it, service work, that now they wear the Christian hat. And in that capacity, they wouldn't use violence. They wouldn't, or they wouldn't be a violent person. They're sort of loving everybody. And that's the, that's the answer. Like when I was over working with the poor, I wasn't going to use, I wasn't going to use violence. I wasn't armed, you know? And so I'm not even thinking about violence in that capacity. And so there's like, there's like a kind of like a, I can operate in one capacity here and another capacity here. And that's why it didn't, it didn't really get me thinking about violence because I thought that I could just like live two different lives there and not have everything uh, lumped together. I'll, on what you're saying with um, working in slums on poverty, there's a really, I'll, I'll just throw another shout, a book called The Locust Effect, a guy named Gary Haugen. 
he start he started he's the CEO or the founder of International Justice Mission. He has a really interesting thesis that you know how much that the world is paying a lot of attention to poverty, but his not that not that I give, agree with his conclusion, but he says that poverty will never go away until violence goes away, and that violence is actually the he, he calls it the locus effect, the hidden driver to a lot of poverty, and you know his solution is sort of functioning justice systems that rid rid the world of violence. It's an interesting book though to think about how violence is tied to poverty because I think I really do think it is. So what what you said about the um the living in two worlds that resonates a lot with me because I, I would have said the same thing and it's it's something you see so th- the irony from your story is you you have a family who da- is down in Ecuador and uh, you know Nate Saints and Jim Elliot are are revered and correct me if I'm wrong but they had a they had a gun with them when they were attacked right they did so they as far as we know, they essentially chose to lay down their lives instead of shoot. They yeah. chose, they brought a gun with them, but they chose nonviolence as the, they knew that if they were to use that gun, they would have no hope right. in their their whole mission. You know? Yeah. So the irony to me is like, you're down there and you've got all these people who revere these people who laid, laid their lives down in nonviolence because they recognize the importance of that religiously spiritually and then we send so many of our people and we encourage and we lift up the state uh, which is a a violent institution um yeah there's there's just we bifurcate that where we (laughs) yeah i i'm just rambling but i mean it it's one of those things that it it made sense to me before but now just splitting it up and saying well if you're in a missionary context as if my whole life is in a missionary context and and displaying Christ, right? And that's the other. I, I don't. There's. We could talk all day on this. The other dangerous part of the affiliation to the Romans thirteen understanding is I think people really do think they have top cover under <laughs> under working for a government. One of the, and this is where I would call people to just a life of pure integrity with no compromise and anything you do as a Christian, I think that's kind of where Christ is trying to push us. Like let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, he's saying you can never be deceitful. And when I look at the military system, I was, I, I was working on a small project where we were trying to evaluate our allies, air forces and trying to, it was really interesting where we, the program was trying to do say, how do we keep people at the level that we want them at. So really interesting that our, our allies, they're, the program is trying to say, how do we you know, get our allies right up to the point where they're where we want them, but not too far up? And how do we prevent people who are enemies from being down there? One of the, what I ended up seeing is that we lie. <laughs> There's a bunch of deception involved in the intelligence world. And I think we know that, you know, that's not a surprise to you, right? That and, and then I started thinking to myself, like, why is it that people are okay with lying in this capacity? But as soon as you're in your private world, <laughs> then, then you can, then you're not expected to lie because, you know, you're not protecting the state's interests and those kinds of things. And that, it's that kind of thinking that I think is crisis just trying to cut down. He's like, no, there's <laughs> like, I'm the king. You, you don't get to sort of live in these two worlds. And 
I, I agree with all your sentiments that we bifurcate, but we shouldn't. That's the, I think that's the, my plea is just the, for people to, to live a solid, stable, Christ-following lives, regardless of what their, their positions are. Yeah, and, and that's what, like with the 2016 election, what it, what it revealed to me was, um, I, John Howard Yoder kind of fleshed it out for me, which was consequentialism. Right. So the, the ends justify the means. If, if, if we think that government is the arm of power in the world, then we can sacrifice morality to it because really we're sacrificing a lesser morality for some greater good. Uh, and, and then I began to just see it everywhere. Like you said, with lying, with, uh, with violence. Yeah. And, and just, I'll just, I'll just give a shout out. Don't take, I, I always say, don't take my word for it to people like, Go go read some of the early early Christians, and I, I think it's really illuminating to see that they're not using the same chains that have sort of crept in to what I was raised with and what you might have been raised with. And I think it's so comforting <laughs> to to go and sort of being like, hey, I, I align with I align with the, the early Christians. You know, the disciples of the disciples is what I like to say, and I think that's that's the the place in history that I want to be is on that side of history. I hope. I hope you do too, and anyone who who's listening. So I'll I'll ask you. Uh, I have one last question that I've I have written down, um, and I'll throw it out. And um, you know, you're welcome to stick around, and we can we can talk more if you have anything you want to talk about. But this is the last last listed one that I want to make sure to get to. Um, one one of the when I advocate that that government just isn't a place that that Christians ought to be. And I don't know if you agree with that. I know you agree with the military um, I, is a problem. I, I'd say there are places in government that don't involve, I use the word entanglement, but if there are any ethical implications that you don't, you, you don't belong there. And I, I could, yeah. So like the post office or maybe like a teacher, um, depending on your role as yeah. a teacher. Okay. Yeah. You, even like USA, I, the agency I described before, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't point and be like, that's all wrong anyway. Okay. So trash, trash collector, there's a bunch of, (laughs) but, but by and large, um, most positions that I think our group would find, or not your group anymore, but, but my group still, and my, our old groups would find useful in the world or powerful or, you know, able to make a difference as far as we can see it those would be kind of off the table. Um, how do you, how do you avoid accusation accusations of ineffectiveness and retreatism? Like you're, you're just um, letting the world go to hell in a handbasket and, and you're not really doing, doing anything effective in the world. Yeah. My, my favorite resource on this question, it's a book called to change the world by a guy named James Hunter. And he, he gets at this this question in a lot of different ways, and he, he does a study on Christians interacting with world change, and he finds that for the most part, when people aim at promoting change in the world as Christians, they, they turn to political solutions. And so, and th- this, is the an- th- this is the answer that's crept into, I'd, I'll just say a broad stroke of the, the American Christian church is that if we want to affect big change, we turn to politics. And then he does a really interesting examination of what, what have the results been here? And looking at, he, he examines culture 
as a result of, all right, if we really want to change things, is the, we should be seeing it in the culture. And I point back at people and said, the political, the political solutions to the problems that we care about has failed. And that how, basically saying, how is it that, I think, however many Americans, I don't know the exact statistics, say that there's some form of Christian, but that their, their lives don't, don't prove it. And so I like to point back at people and say, we have failed as Christians. I, I think our, many of us could agree that a lot of our culture is secular. Um, the media is secular. The politics are secular. The music is secular. The dominant forces in this country are sort of anti, anti what Christ taught. And I try to say, hey, if you really want to change things, you, you got to pull out and put your eggs in the church basket where where if you want to change culture, you got to do it through a way that is different than what's not been working. And I, I think I can go toe to toe with people pretty in a lot of ways on how they think I'm in a, it might be ineffective or a cop out. But I think there's equally as relevant results that the church has had over time. The church being the pure church, not necessarily the church and state model. But that book itself really changed my thinking on this, that really to, to change the culture, politics hasn't worked. And, and we've actually, as Christians, we've failed if we see, if you look at the trend of culture versus our answers to it, and that we're failing as Christians to sort of try to have the outcomes that we're aiming for. I hope that that answer makes sense. And so yeah, yeah. We, and it's it's more of a it's a more of a like I don't have the perfect solution, but I know what you're trying isn't working. Is 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 sort of my my answer to to that question. So we yeah. should, we we should be trying something else. And I think what we saw in 2016, what I saw in 2016 was um, people realized that what we were doing wasn't working, and so people like us were like, oh yeah, that's because it's it's not the right thing. We're not doing the Christian thing. But so many, so many in my group went the other way and said, yeah, that means we have to do it harder and work right. harder. Um, and and I, I think I don't want to decry. I think political, there can be some good political outcomes that I like to talk about. Um, there is a little bit of you can make the world a little better by being involved in politics. Right. And in some metric, I, I like to talk about immigration. I'm still. <laughs> I'm still a big, when I think about like political issues, I love to think about immigration. Like my dad is, my mom passed away and my dad's um, remarried to an Ecuadorian lady right now and she still can't get into the country. So I, it's it's really interesting to me that if we as the Christian church wanted to get the gospel of the kingdom to the nations, you know, it'd be really good if the borders opened up. We could train everyone here, send them back to where they came from on their own turf, you know, voila. We no longer need foreign missionaries, but that's a, an, another another argument there, you know. Yeah, and it, it's interesting to me. Um, we have we have friends who were um, going to do missions in Greece, and and some of our our churches, some of our like really conservative uh, churches, were um, were like, "Oh, that's so awesome!" Because there are so many refugees, and you'll have such an opportunity to reach out. But then we knew that these same people were were so anti-immigrant. And you're like, right. oh, you're okay. You're okay with that over there, but you don't want it here, um, right? And and my my point being that I do think good can come out of political decisions. And I'm not saying it can't, but I'm not. It shouldn't be where we just like 
zone in on how we're going to change things. I think Christians can pray for good outcomes that political leaders make for us, but it's not it's not our sole responsibility as as followers of Christ. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.